Well, why don't I pray and uh, we'll get started. I'm excited to get into this, this topic this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you've given us everything in Christ Jesus. Uh, that we, although lost and all but obliterated in our sinfulness, you came, condescended yourself in the person of your Son, Jesus Christ, and that you've given us the ability to study you, to contemplate you, to renew our minds to a worshipful life that anticipates the glory that we have in you. Help us focus on you this morning. and Let everything that is said uh, be said to your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, today the topic is the image of God in Christ, and the technical term is the uh, imago substantialis, the essential image of God that's in Christ Jesus. I'm excited to get into that, but today we're going to recap a little bit first uh, and talk about the image of God in man first. There are a few steps that we have to take before we get directly into the image of God in Christ. So you'll recall that last week, uh, if you were here, we looked at Psalm 8 as well as Genesis 1 and 2, and we concluded that the image of God in humanity is humanity itself united in both body and soul. It's everything that pertains to the human being. And that's important for how we reflect God and his goodness in creation, but it's also important secondarily and related to the first for ethics. Uh, We talked about that a little bit. In fact, there's a deep significance there. Um, Earlier last week, in fact, uh, Governor Brian Kemp of Georgia signed in to affect the fetal heartbeat bill, uh, which directly ties to this idea of what we consider to be a person, a focus on the actual uh, human person in the womb, uh, which the Washington Post noted. They had an interesting article um, And it's interesting seeing some of the reactions as well. CNN's Christine Quinn says this, quote, When a woman is pregnant, that is not a human being inside of her. End quote. Contrarily, Psalm 139.13 says that uses the same potter imagery uh, from Genesis 2.7, saying that we're fearfully and wonderfully made, uh, woven together by God inside the womb. In fact, David in Psalm 51.5 says that he's conceived in sin and refers to himself as an I or a me. And both of those passages are drawing on this cosmological language, right, of the image of God as consisting in the body as well as as the soul in the womb. And this dehumanizing sentiment that we see today is an affront, in fact, to the image of God uh, in man that's continuing. We see, in fact, in Genesis 9-6, it says that whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be set, shed, for in the image of God he made man. In fact, that verse talks about the image of God as kind of this grounds for our moral accountability before God, where, of course, all sin is directed ultimately towards God. Now, this points to the deterioration of the image um, in God when we talk about sin and its effects We used last week the phrase that we've been defaced, but not erased. The image has been defaced, but not erased. And that means that it breaks our communion with God. It affects our whole person, body, uh, as well as soul. Genesis 3-7 talks about uh, the shame that Adam and Eve had bodily uh, when sin had affected it after the fall. 
And in fact, Augustine refers to that verse as, quote, a novel disturbance in their disobedient flesh. Now, there is a plethora of passages that talk about this state as being, in fact, a kind of deadness, a separation from God. Ephesians 2.1 refers to it as being dead in our trespasses and sins. Colossians 2.13 says that you were dead in your transgressions. And Romans 6.23 states that the wages of sin is death. However, in that verse, Paul immediately qualifies it by saying, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. We're going to be talking about Christ as the very image of God, equivalently, substantially, and essentially. And we're going to be entering upon the threshold of high Trinitarian theology. There's going to be a lot that's difficult uh, to understand today for me and for you, um, which is why we're going to stick close to the text. This is going to be another Lerman lecture sermon. Uh, and we're going to be staying in Colossians in particular, which talks about the sufficiency of Christ or that classic Reformation doctrine of Christ alone as the boundaries for our faith and our salvation. It was John Calvin who wrote, Outside Christ, there is nothing worth knowing. And elsewhere, that Christ is all-sufficient. He says that in his sermons on Ephesians in particular. Particularly, uh, we're going to be talking about Colossians 1, 15-22. However... As R.C. Reed once says, to know just how much we are indebted to Christ, we must know how much we are indebted to Adam. So in order to get there, we're going to turn to Romans 5. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be looking at Romans 5 real quick. Of course, the synthetic nature of theology, like we said last week, means that we have to cover a lot of ground in order to get to who Jesus Christ is in order to understand the image of God in Christ. I'm going to read Romans 5, 12 to 21. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for until the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many." The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from the many transgressions, resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, 
Even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so, grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, that's a confusing passage. And in fact, it sounds like word salad when I'm reading it out loud, doesn't it? Um, But it's actually a very important passage. Uh, Paul places it central in his logic for how we understand our relation to Christ. And historically, it was the center of a controversy known as the Pelagian Controversy between Augustine of Hippo on the one hand and Pelagius, who's a renowned heretic, on the other. The controversy revolved around what's called original sin. Where does sin come from and how does it affect our person? It was sparked when Pelagius, who was a monk in Jerusalem, uh, heard Augustine being read aloud, Augustine's Confessions. And the passage was this one from Confessions chapter 10. My whole hope is in thy exceedingly great mercy and that alone. Give what thou commandest and command what thou wilt. This meant that humans can contribute nothing to God's grace and that God's grace is everything in the act of salvation. However, that didn't set, sit well with Pelagius or his student after him, Julianus. And they caused quite a controversy about this by saying that man is completely neutral uh, in his ability to choose good or choose evil. Augustine's response to this came, in fact, for, from Romans 5, the passage we just read. Again, it's a confusing passage, uh, but there's a basic key to understanding it the next time that you have to read through it. And that's the key of considering it as an imperfect analogy. There's a comparison on the one hand between Adam and Christ, and there's a contrast on the other hand um, between their various functions. This is called, just to give for those of you who are curious, it's called syncresis. It's the comparison of comparable persons, objects, or things with deficiencies or superiorities highlighted. It was a classic literary device. And this militates, in fact, against the claim uh, that this was not doctrinally central to Paul's theology. Occasionally, you'll see people say that this verse is too imprecise to make any theological claims about it. But Paul places it very central here. And note also that it's a cosmological argument. That is to say, it's grounded in how we understand creation is told to us in the Bible. So the comparison teaches the means of participation, either in Adam on the one hand or Christ on the other. The Greek word in verse 14 is tupos, which is a type. It's the pattern against which a coin is struck from the mint. And that speaks of that same function that Christ has as Adam does. That is to say they're both representatives of their respective races. And look at verse 19. It says that the word made is used. And that word made is kathisteme, to ordain or to establish. And the actual Greek form of it means that it's a sole act of God alone. God places either in Adam or he places in Christ as representatives. Now, that's the comparison and how they're functioning as heads of their respective races. The contrast is their differing acts and results. The one act of being an Adam is transgression resulting in condemnation. 
And that has to do with that covenant found in Genesis 2, 16 to 17. You recall God is talking to Adam in the garden and he says, it says, the Lord God commanded Adam saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat from it, you will surely die. This is why we speak of having sinned in Adam, by the way, and not in Eve. Eve ate first, right? But Adam was constituted federal head of the human race. That's also why we, the verse here talks about the imputation of one sin, not all of Adam's sins, to the human race. So Adam was created by God to be the perfect representative for all humans after him. And that's why we inherit both guilt and corruption from him. Ephesians 2.3 says, By nature we are children of, of wrath. And Genesis 8.21, uh, speaking after the flood, says that the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. In Augustine's words, we are born sinners. Yet, uh, on the other hand, uh, there's a distinct contrast in this passage. The parallel idea to the one act of condemnation is the one act of righteousness resulting in justification. That is to say, on the one hand, the one man, Adam, brought sin and condemnation to all men who are under his headship. And on the other hand, the one man, Jesus Christ, brought salvation to all who are under his headship. Now, you may be asking, what does this have to do with the image of God? Well, it has everything to do with the image of God. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. And this verse is actually underlying Paul's theology. It shows that underlying Paul's theology is a primarily kind of cosmological sense of our origins in Adam, which is the basis for our participation in Christ. And he draws that out more in this section. Now, the context here is that Paul is attempting to underscore the importance of Christ's actual resurrection. He's applying it to our resurrection. And in doing so, he's pitting Adam versus Christ. And he uses very similar language to that which we just read in Romans 5. Um, that I, in verse 22, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ will all be made alive. And that's the ground in Paul's logic for our resurrection, and even glorification. And the ground is the image of God. Let's read verses 38 to 30 to 49. But God gives it a body just as he wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of men, and another flesh of beasts, and another flesh of birds, and another of fish. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one, and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star and glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So also is it written, The first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural. Then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth. 
earthy. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. Now, I chose several passages this morning that were word salad, right? Um, this is another example of a difficult and interpretively difficult passage. And I don't have the time to comprehensively explain it, unfortunately, this morning. But just to simplify, note the parallels here. There's the first man who is Adam, and he's described as being earthy. The last man is Christ, and he's considered heavenly. Uh, in fact, the key verse here, however, that I want to zone in is verse 49. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. That's not speaking, in fact, of a spiritualization of the body, right? We're not going to be, when we're resurrected, uh, intangible ghosts uh, floating around as orbs in heaven. Um, that's contrary to Paul's logic, in fact. Um, Paul isn't a, a, a Platonist. He's not positing kind of spirit versus matter dualism. Um, he's assuming that heaven is a very real place where God's presence will be man is manifest. And in, Paul, in Paul's logic here, he's saying that Christ, uh, as the image of the heavenly, is bringing a restoration of the relationship lost in Adam. This is total, in fact. The more I read this passage, uh, the focus, I see the focus is on the body as essential for renewed communion with God as part of that image. We'll talk about this passage a bit more uh, and the future state of glorification next week and what that looks like. And now, I want to focus on the centrality of Christ as the essential image of God into which mankind's image is restored. Uh, and we're going to be focusing uh, on Colossians. We're doing a lot of Bible hopping. Good systematic theology is synthesizing Bible. Not where they teach me at Yale. <laughs> so our primary text this morning is going to be Colossians 1 here. And uh, you'll note uh, that this text is going to be speaking of, of Christ, our perfect mediator, which is an important reality. We talked about that uh, in my Bible, the Bible study that I attend on Thursday nights. Another example, we were talking about union with Christ, and we ended up having to talk about every other doctrine attached to union with Christ. Um, but it's important to understand that Christ is our perfect mediator. First Timothy 2.5 says there's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And that begs the question, why Christ? Why is Christ our perfect mediator? Why couldn't it have been the Holy Spirit? Why couldn't God have chosen some other means uh, to save us? This text, in, in that text in 1 Timothy 2.5 I, I read, um, directly equates Christ's mediation to his deity. Uh, it was Stephen Charnock who said that Christ is said to be the one mediator in the same sense that God is said to be the one God. And in our passage, it talks about Christ's mediatorial role in verse 20 as being recon as reconciled all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. So why? Why does that constitute him as mediator? Well, Paul provides the theological answer here, beginning in verse 15. It says here, 
that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church. And he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, there it is, that original sin concept, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Now Christ is spoken here of here as the image of the invisible God. Now, I do have to distinguish that's not the same as our image. We have a, a similar image, a, a likeness, an analogy is the word theologians will use. However, Hebrews 1.3 will be even more explicit to say that he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. His very nature is the Son of God, is what's being talked about here. That he is, in fact, God himself, derived from the essence of God and therefore fully God. Christ once said to, to Philip, when Philip was asking him, you know, show me the Father. And Christ turns to him, kind of offended almost in his voice, and says, he who has seen me has seen the Father. In fact, that's the entire uh, theme of the Gospel of John, right? The idea that the word uh, became the word became flesh. The word was with God and was God. And John one eighteen talks about uh, Christ as the only begotten of the Father, the monogenes. That is, he's uniquely the second person of the Trinity, and he's the same essence as God the Father. Now, exactly how this works within the Trinity, the kind of Trinitarian dynamic in, inherent inside itself, uh, is a great mystery. It's a profound theological mystery. That doesn't mean we can't articulate it well. Um, but we'll never be able to understand it. In fact, the greatest theological minds, Augustine talks about it in a work on the Trinity, um, and Jonathan Edwards talks about it quite a bit. He has this idea that the Father's perfect, and he has a perfect idea of himself when he thinks about himself, and that perfect idea of himself has to be equally himself because he is himself perfect, and so that is the Son, and, you know, Edwards gets into this whole thing, but uh, there are certain problems that people have with that, and he's accused of, actually, some people accuse him of a kind of a heterodoxy because of that idea. Um, it has some problems, and I think it's more correct to simply hedge with Calvin on this one. And Calvin once said, quote, it is not lawful for mortal men to intrude upon the secrets of God. So the Bible has revealed very high Trinitarian doctrine to us, but we may never actually be able to make sense just thinking about it uh, in, our, in our hearts. Um, and in fact, that's probably a mystery that we'll be able to delve deeper and deeper into in, in eternity forever. That's a wonderful concept. All we need to know for this present study, however, is that Christ is the self-same Im image of God. Um, there's a regulation 
uh, that goes on there uh, when it talks about Christ as the image of God and the superlative. Calvin says this, quote, God is comprehended in Christ alone. In Christ alone. In fact, uh, Francis Turretin, who's a Genevan pastor and theologian in the 17th century after Calvin, he draws out four points of why Christ himself had to be uh, our mediator. And it's what, the third point is directly related to his nature as the image of God. He says this, quote, It was his to recreate who it was to create. What the word, by which all things were made in the first creation, should reform us after his image in the second. The image of God, obscured by sin and all but destroyed, could not be repaired in us better than by him who was the image of the invisible God. End quote. That is to say, Christ, as the image of God, is the pattern for our renewal. And that's exactly why Colossians 3.10 says that we, quote, have put on the new self who is being renewed in, uh, to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Or Ephesians 4, 23 to 24, says that uh, you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which, according to God, has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Or, speaking of the image of God in Christ, Romans eight twenty nine, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he could be firstborn among many brethren. John Owen writes this, uh, the infinite wisdom of God had this design, namely, that Christ might be the pattern and example of the renovation of the image of God in us, and of the glory that doth ensue thereon. He is in the eye of God as the idea of what he intends in us, in the communication of grace and glory, and he ought to be so in ours, as unto all that we aim at in a way of duty." Now, there's a final aspect here, and that's the aspect of the Holy Spirit. Uh, so I'm going to take a look real quick at John 16, because I think that's important, an important aspect in how we uh, have our image of God renewed. John 16, 7 to 11, Christ is speaking of what he gains by his ascension into heaven. And it says this, But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe me, and concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. That speaks of Christ's mediatorial mission, obtaining the work of the Holy Spirit. And that idea in this text, the idea of convicting of sins, is found, in, in fact, in Titus, uh, when Paul talks a little bit about regeneration, and he has this kind of liturgical uh, almost passage. It says, But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his great mercy, by here it is the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, uh, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And that's 
noted especially in Second uh, Corinthians 3.18, which says that, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. There's an equation in these verses. The work of the Holy Spirit is what's returning that image of God and restoring it to our hearts. This gives us a remarkable glimpse into the divine plan, doesn't it? The Father sent the Son, the Son saves his people, and the Spirit secures the renewed image of God in our hearts. He is the uh, seal that makes certain the image of God uh, forever onto our, onto our very hearts. That's why uh, we don't have to worry about, uh, from this point on, having that same kind of mutable will that Adam did where we could maybe fall out of God's grace. Christ makes that certain and he makes it certain through the Holy Spirit. Uh, Ephesians 1, 13, 14, in fact. In him, you also are, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. That's a ever-increasing intimacy that we have with God, uh, where we'll be able to, in fact, participate in some way in the Trinitarian harmony, even into eternity. That's why Christ prays on our behalf as our faithful mediator and high priest in John 17, the glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. And I and them and you and me that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am so that they may see me in glory, which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. Now, we've been speaking of a renewed spiritual image. Right? And this is happening presently for those who are regenerated in, in Christ Jesus. Um, of course, that means that we're still awaiting renewal, and many of you eagerly waiting for the renewal of our bodies uh, in the future state, in the likeness of Christ, right? First um, John 3, 2, in fact, talks about that future reality that um, we're going to be like him when he appears, because we're going to see him as he is. It's a remarkable concept that our bodies will be raised incorruptible, um, bearing the image of the heavenly. And we're going to have to talk more about that next week. So there are several points of application that we could give. Um, in fact, I think on a pastoral level, the idea of having our image, the image of God renewed body and soul is wonderfully comforting to the believer and a great pastoral emphasis. Let me just give you a few points of application that we could possibly take away from this. Um, on the pastoral level, it's very humbling, doesn't it? Because it takes the focus away from ourselves, and it gives complete honor to God. It talks about the undeserving grace that we have in Jesus Christ. He didn't have to uh, condescend. He didn't have to uh, come down from heaven, but he did. He took the form of a bondservant and emptied himself, as it talks about in Philippians. In fact, that's why Paul says in, in Ephesians 1 6 
he talks about this this whole scheme of, of salvation being, quote, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. And in fact, that's why Ephesians 2, 8 to 10 then goes on to talk about how it's by grace we've been saved, uh, by faith, and that not of ourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, lest any man shall boast, for we are his workmanship, created, there's that recreation language, in Christ Jesus uh, for good works which God prepared beforehand for those uh, who, who love him. And that causes us to want to, to in the words of, of Hebrews 12, to look unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Um, in him is all the sufficient, uh, the sufficient requirements for everything that we need to grow spiritually. And that's wonderfully comforting. All we have to do is look to Jesus Christ. Um, Colossians 2, 6-7 says, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed, overflowing with gratitude. <clears throat> wonderful, wonderful uh, doctrine. In fact, it goes on, we could draw this even further to talk about our sanctification. It isn't that we are necessarily driving our own sanctification. Yes, we are a part of this process, um, but sanctification itself that's conforming us to the image of God uh, is empowered solely by uh, the Holy Spirit. Uh, Philippians 2 12 to 13 says that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And 2 Corinthians 3, 17 says, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, right? So it's the Holy Spirit that's giving us that ability to want to be conformed to the Son, to want to love him and pursue him and pursue holiness and pursue likeness with Jesus Christ. And finally, that provides quite a de- great degree of assurance for us, doesn't it? We are protected by that same power of God that breathed the world into existence. That's the point of Colossians 1, in fact, that uh, our uh, reconciliation with Christ is rooted on his mediate, mediatorial reconciliation of all things in him as the image of the invisible God. And that provides us uh, finally, comfort in trouble, um, to know that no matter what we go through, uh, we just have to set our eyes on Jesus, um, to look at, look into the heavens and to see where Christ Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. Now, on the more outward level, uh, not just personal spirituality, I think this also has great evangelistic appeal. Uh, because we can now, we now have a platform. We talked about this a little bit last week, right? A platform for talking about the renewal of image uh, in Christ alone. We have this ability, profound ability, to be able to speak into the various issues that people have in their lives, um, and to be able to say, "Well, look, uh, we're all dead in our trespass, trespasses and sins." The Bible tells us this. The Bible tells us that we've we've fallen after Adam, and that the 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 image that we had, the communion we have with God has, has been lost. But that's renewed in Jesus Christ, that he gives us this remarkable pattern and that by faith in him, uh, we're renewed to this understanding of who he is and we get to partake uh, in what was, what was lost. 
this speaks directly, in fact, um, on a more social level, to the futility of social endeavors for the sake of social endeavors, doesn't it? Uh, you hear this a lot. Um, but whenever I, I hear some of these problems, and not that these aren't important problems, that, that's, that's actually the point. These are important problems, and the problem is human sinfulness, isn't it? And that means that only Christ can transform us. Uh, in First John two fifteen, it says, "Do not love the world nor the things in the world, for those you know those things are passing away." Um, but if we look to Christ, He is the only the sole platform uh, in which that can be renewed, and in which we can look ahead to a heavens and earth, in which the image of Christ uh, fills the new hev- the new heaven and earth, and we are able to commune with God, and our renewed bodies and souls uh, forever and ever. So, so let me pray and we can have some question and answer. Father, as we are here on earth, uh, we know that our minds can't fully grasp the glorious reality of what this means for us. That we are encumbered not just by that first boundary of finitude as created beings, but that we're sinful even in our state in you, we still have the remnants of sin. We just pray that you would lift that from our hearts so that we could pursue you in humility of lives, transforming ourselves by your spirit into your image. May we be shining lights, images of your glory, representatives, in fact, of the great representative who is the head of the redeemed race, Christ Jesus. We pray this in his name. Seven minutes. that would have to do directly with his essence, yeah, with who he is in himself. That, that doesn't have to do with his incarnation. That has to do with his existence in the Trinity. So that's an eternal reality. Uh, so yeah. the image to which we're renewed in Christ mm-hmm. it may be related is related, to the yeah. image in Adam, mm-hmm. but is right. that's not way, quite the same. The step of him in his messianic mission as mediator is, is needed in that, right? So the him as the perfect image makes him the perfect mediator, makes him the perfect, as it were, Trinitarian candidate to condescend himself to renew the image in Adam. So there's some steps that we had to take to get there. But did, did that help? Did, was so that, the renewed image yeah. that we have through Christ, mm-hmm. is it basically the same as the original image that Adam wore? Yeah, I, I, think, that, I think that's fair. I think that's oh, fair to say that, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. There's an added element of the permanence that comes from from God's grace, though, that, that I'm trying to... to yeah, permanence. Yeah, there's a permanence through the Holy Spirit uh, that, that you have not necessarily just... Um, you, yes. you know, we're not having something, something added to our natures. We're not changing, necessarily. We're not becoming superhuman, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Um, the, our humanity is, is good. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, um, so you, you might hear some people try and talk about um, 
maybe we'll, we'll become more and more and more and more and more human or more extra human in heaven or we'll become, uh, some people will try and use that verse from Matthew 22 to say we'll be like angels. I think they're making a, a leap in logic when they read that. We're, we're going to be like the angels in that we'll neither be married nor given in marriage. That's, that's one qualification there. Um, but I, I don't think that's going to say that we're going to literally become angels in heavens where we don't have bodies. We are going to be renewed human beings, and there's going to be a permanence in our ability to commune with God through our human bodies. Did that explain it? Was that helpful? Okay. Uh, just one quick follow-up. Yeah. So the image in Christ, mm-hmm. you said that is eternal. Yeah. Uh, but... Uh, so is that distinct from the image Adam bore and that we will bear? Well, I think it's, it's, it's helpful to see us as, obviously, Christ is fully God. And the image of God in Adam reflects that. Mm-hmm. So that's part of the renewal that's going on there, is we're brought, brought to reflect that and we're brought to be renewed into that image. Yes. Great. struck with the image of God. Um, so Jesus Christ being described as meek and humble, um, which God himself like is humble and he's meek, but it's not described that way. Like human beings are yeah, they realize how low they are in comparison to who the Father is. Mm-hmm. Um, so is that just when Jesus Christ came down, God was always humble and meek. Is that just like a amplification like Manifestation of his humility by coming down as a former bomb servant. And is he like just amp- like yeah. in the flesh and Jesus Christ? Is he just kind of putting that on display um, as before, where God was he wasn't a former bomb servant? Yeah, I think I think that's a good way to to look at it. Um, that creation. The creation itself even was was created as an, an act of God's grace. He could have been perfect. God didn't need us. You know? He could have been perfectly content in us. And he, in fact, he didn't even need to save us. Um, but that in him, condescending, taking on the form of the bondservant, this is the ultimate act of grace. And, and John one fourteen says that he's, you know, Jesus Christ is full of grace and truth. This idea that he could have been perfectly content in heaven, um, but that part of his character led him to want to dispose himself to come down and um, the infinite quality of his love demonstrated in grace. So I think that's helpful. The next question that some theologians like to tinker with is, uh, does that mean that God in his character did make, that that does make creation necessary? Um, So that's that's this whole other dynamic aspect. I don't think we have to get into that. The bottom line is uh, that part of his character is that he's so infinitely gracious that he could do something he didn't have to do. So could you, could God properly be described as meek before Jesus? I mean, before Jesus came down um, and became like you know so dependent on. I guess he he must have been. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's a, a special mm-hmm. quality that Christ shows by his dependence on the Father in weakness. Yeah, I guess that has to do with. So there's there's an interesting exercise in theology of, of when you're defining the attributes of God or virtues or whatever it is, you define it first in relation to God and then second in relation to us. Uh, and that can be fun with something like humility. I think that's kind of like what you're, or meekness, right? It's kind of what you're asking. 
And if you go with, you know, Edwards has this definition of humility, which is recognizing and being content with your proper station or something like that. Um, and so if that's true, then God is infinitely imperfect, perfectly meek. He's perfectly content in his, his station because his station is perfect. Um, <laughs> and that never changes. So, yeah. Yes? I think in that idea, our first, our first relate that idea of meekness to God, we first uh, are introduced to God in creation. Mm-hmm. And I think that the delicate quality of so much in creation mm-hmm. would infer an idea of this this nuance, and I think his, like, gracious distance and forbearance, I think all of those things kind of are about That's good. Thank you. Well, it's 9.50, so I suggest we ascend to the sanctuary, as it were. Thank you, everyone, for, for coming.